Howdy y'all, welcome to this edition of the History of Christianity Season 2. We're on Part 2 today. We're going to be talking about one of the most prominent reformers, and that is Martin Luther. Obviously, this won't be the only time we talk about him. We'll be talking about him for some time, but we'll get a chance to see his background today. And we start by looking at some different thoughts about the influence of Martin Luther. Throughout the history of Christianity, there have been few people debated about more than Martin Luther. For some, he is the man who destroyed the unity of the church, while for others, he is a great hero who could do no wrong. This is a very extreme personality. This is a person who had a huge effect on the church, and for some, it was someone who brought back the legitimacy of the teachings of the church, back to the original intent of the, the teachings from the early church that were given to them by Jesus Christ through his followers. But then for some, the emphasis is on the fact that he is the one who brought about the split of the church. So you're going to be in one side or the other of this, but what we're going to find out is neither of these extreme positions are completely true. So he's not the great devil, and he's also not the heroic person that some portray him to be. He's a human being who had flaws and also had some positive things about him as well. Luther appears to have been a studious man who was also uncouth and rude in his manner. He, he was a guy who spent a lot of time studying. He knew what he was talking about. He was very dedicated to scripture, and yet his manner was not always the best. It goes into that, that saying that it's not always what you say, but how you say it. Obviously, there were going to be a lot of problems with what Martin Luther was saying. So it definitely was about what he said, but it also was about the way he said it. He had a manner about him that was not always very polite. And so you had the added thing of not just what he's saying, but also I don't like I just don't like the guy in general. I don't like what he what he says or how he says it. And that's a flaw that he had. It contributed to some of the conflict that came about in his life even among some of those that supported him. The passionate faith which burned within him was often expressed in a vulgar way. He had a lot of passion, but he also had some problems controlling the way he spoke. It didn't go without notice. It contributed to some of the problems that he had. Nothing mattered to him more than his faith and his obedience to God. Once he was convinced that God was directing him in a particular way, he followed it regardless of the consequences. There's a lot of to admire about that. It's also something that can be dangerous. We do admire people of faith and passion. However, they're not so admirable if their faith and passion is not in the right thing. Now, for Martin Luther, I don't believe that to be the case, although some would. He was a man of great passion, and when he thought God was directing him in a way, you couldn't stop him. He was going to go the way he felt God was leading him to go. Martin Luther had that personality. Unfortunately, he tended to underline what he found most important by exaggerating. He would make points using hyperbole, and for someone to come along, it was easy to poke holes in some of the things he had to say because they were exaggerated. He's trying to make a strong point using that technique. It wasn't always the best one. This, along with his conviction and stance on truth, led him to utter expressions and take positions that he or his followers later regretted. It was certainly true of people that wanted to support Luther that he sometimes put them in a bad position because they had to support somebody that didn't always say things the best. But it even got him in trouble, and he even regretted some of the ways that he talked about things and some of the ways he used exaggeration to try to get his point across that came back to bite him. 
So again, this is a flawed man, just like every single person. It's one of the things that is so great about Christianity, the traditions of the history of the church, right from the Bible days to the Old Testament, the New Testament, even into the, the written history of the church. People are not glorified. They are shown warts and all, flaws and all. There are no perfect people that God uses. They're all, all of us are going to have good points and bad points, and Martin Luther is no different. The time was ripe for Luther and for Reformation. The invention of the movable type printing press gave his writings a widespread audience. Luther was able to get his thoughts out there to the common people. This was so important. Remember, there's already a, a feeling among a, a grassroots effort among the people of the church, the commoners, not the people in leadership, but those under them, that something's not right. There needs to be some change. Luther was able to, to harness that, whether he even really knew what he was doing at first or not. He was able to get that support because he was able to get his thoughts out there. And the way he did that was through being able to print and distribute materials. The growing German nationalist movement also served him as a means of very valuable support because he was a German. People that were really invested in Germany as a nation and as a people wanted to support him because they felt like he was a voice not just for protest in theological matters in the church, but also protest against the way the church had treated Germany, kind of using it as just a, a bank for them to get money and suck people dry. They f saw Luther as a champion against that kind of stuff, and he was, for sure. It, it wasn't his probably his most important thing, but it was definitely a big thing that he emphasized. And so those German nationalists, they really got behind him because they felt like he was a man speaking for them. The humanists hoping for reformation supported Luther, though they might disagree with many of his tenets. Remember last week we talked about the humanists. We talked about the fact that they really wanted reform within the church and not a split. They wanted, they thought things could change from within. It, it didn't happen that way, but they supported Luther because they saw in him a guy that did stand up for some of the things that they believed. Not everything. There were, there were points that they didn't agree with, but he was the man that was leading this movement now, and so they were going to get behind him, and many of them did. Political circumstances shielded him from immediate condemnation, allowing the storm of reform to become unstoppable. What we'll see through this is this was a perfect time. Most people in the past who had had opposition to the church to this extent were silenced very quickly. Some of them were silenced and kind of sent out to exile or put away, or maybe they recanted. Some were actually killed. Luther lived in a time and the circumstances of which he was able to be protected, and it allowed him to stand up longer than many that had come before him, and therefore he was able to really lead a movement that ne probably would have never happened at any other time before now, certainly not in the immediate past from this time. So timing was perfect for Luther, and he actually was the right man for the job, although he did have his flaws as well. We need to look at Luther's background to understand how he got to the point that he did. Luther was born in 1483 in Eiselbahn, Germany. He grew up with parents who treated him very harshly. This is going to be a big factor for him. He got his idea about God from the way he was treated as a young man. And it's not unusual for people to feel that way. God in the Bible is depicted as a father. Well, what happens if you have a father that's terrible? What happens if you have a father that is very wrathful? 
what happens if you have a father who is vindictive and seems to mistreat you or is just very, very harsh? All of a sudden, your view of God can be skewed because of the fact that you are thinking of him as your father. And your father might not have been so great. Now, we know that God, as a father, is going to have all the best qualities of fathers. But not all people experience the best qualities of fathers. And Luther was definitely one of these. And it really, really did cause him a lot of problems in understanding who God was and understanding how God wanted to relate to him. Eventually, he broke through that, but it caused problems for a long time. Later in life, he continued to deal with periods of depression and anxiety. Many believe this was due to his severe upbringing. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know if that's the case. It probably was a contributing factor for sure. It may have been something that would have been in him anyway. Regardless of that, it's a factor how you're raised. And for whatever reason, he did deal with some real problems in his psychological makeup, depression and anxiety throughout his lifetime. In July of 1505, at almost 22 years of age, Luther joined the monastery at Erfurt. This went against the wishes of his father, who had planned for Luther to become a lawyer. And he didn't just plan for it. He had had Luther educated and had him set up to be a lawyer. He thought that Luther would be, that would be a great profession for him, that he would do really well. He would monetarily be set for life. And his father had this great plan. Well, it's not hard to believe that a father who Luther looked at as being kind of a tyrant is not somebody whose plan he wanted to follow. And Luther decided to go against him, but it wasn't purely just out of spite against his father. Ultimately, Luther believed a life in the monastery would gain him salvation, while a life gaining riches as a lawyer would not. Luther intended to make use of the means of salvation offered by the church, of which the monastic life was the surest. You have to kind of remember what the church is teaching at this time. You have to be in right standing with the church in order to be saved. It's not just a personal relationship you have with Jesus Christ. Penance is a big part of that. Luther wants to hedge his bets. He is terrified of eternal damnation. He is terrified of an angry, wrathful God who is going to send him straight to hell. And so he decides, you know, if I spend my life as a lawyer, just doing things to enrich myself, that's not necessarily going to be a great look on Judgment Day. However, if I spend my life in a monastic order and give up the things of this world in order to help preach the gospel and reach people for the, for the God that I serve and for the church, then I'm going to be in a little bit better position, and I want to be in the best position I can get. It was a flawed way of thinking because of the realities of what the church was teaching, which was not correct. But it was also not a bad way of thinking, having that idea in mind. If you think your eternal state is based on these things that you do with and for the church, then you are absolutely correct to do everything you can to make yourself and be in the most favorable position. Because after all, we're talking about eternity. Our life in this world is a drop in the bucket compared to what eternity is. And Luther realized that, and he was trying to put himself in the best position he could. At first, Luther's life at the monastery was a happy one. It did not take long for him to be promoted to priest. He did really well at first, and he got promoted quickly. But that kind of set the ball rolling on some problems, because soon after that, he began to feel inadequate, 
and he had that ongoing fear of God's judgment, all of those con things contributed to him being overwhelmed with terror. He couldn't really do the job that he had been promoted into because of the feelings he had of just not being worthy, that God didn't accept him, and that he was probably headed to hell regardless of what he did. That's not a great position for a church leader to be in. That's tough. And Luther was dealing with that. He was fine when he was the low man on the totem pole. Once he started moving up, he got things got worse and worse for him. Luther viewed God as a severe judge, much the same as his father and childhood teachers. The factor we didn't throw into this earlier, but he had some pretty tough teachers when he was a kid, too, that were hard disciplinarians, so that didn't help things. He expected God to find him wanting on Judgment Day, just like everybody else had in his life. The authorities he had growing up, they never did. he never seemed to please them. They always found fault with him. So it's not unusual for him to think, well, if I can't even please these earthly people that are flawed human beings like me, how in the world am I going to stand in good standing with a holy God? I, there's really no chance of that. And he realized that in and of himself, he couldn't be justified before God. It didn't matter what he did. And he knew that. It, it stayed with him for many years, even before he realized that that actually is the view of Scripture and that there's a remedy for it. But he, he realized what position he was in, and it was not one that he was on solid ground, and it made him just have a terrible th time in finding a place that he could serve. The church taught him that good works and the sacrament of penance would bring him justification before God. But for Luther, a man of deep religious conviction, sincerity, and passion, this was not enough. Luther feared that even the sacrament of penance would not be enough to bring him into justification before God. Luther worked very hard to find that sense of peace that he lacked, but nothing he did would calm his fears of damnation. He was not at peace whatsoever. He practiced everything recommended to him. Everything that he was told to do, he did it. He even went so far as to punish his body, and he went to confession as often as possible. He, drew, he drove the priests there crazy with his confessions. He, he couldn't get enough of it because he really believed that he had to confess everything, and if there was even the slightest little thing he forgot, then it was it was all for nothing. He was going to he was going into damnation. So a horrible way to have to live your life. And in fact, it meant that he spent hours examining and listing his sins, scared to death that he would forget one and lose his reward. That that's what was being taught is that you had to confess every sin, and so you had the opportunity to atone for your sins. Even after coming through the church, even after coming and doing everything you were supposed to do, you still had to deal with the sins you had committed. And so, but penance was the answer to that. You just went in and confessed and did what you were told to do and you were good to go. But Luther knew enough to understand that there was always the possibility of some sin that creeped in that he didn't know about or he forgot about or he didn't really realize it. Maybe something subconsciously or in his mind, a thought. Any little tiny thing, he's thinking, you know, the I could confess a, a thousand sins, but if there's a the one more, a thousand and one that I don't get to or I don't realize or somehow whatever, then I, it was all for nothing. I might as well not confess to any of them because that one is enough to get me sent to damnation. So he would go about just, I'm going to get every one. I'm going to make a list of every single sin, but the more he studied them, the more he found and he remained in a state of despair because he finally realized there's no way I can get them all. There's all, there's always going to be something. There's always going to be something. And even if I did, I would never feel at peace about it because I would always think there's something I'm not getting. 
His spiritual advisor next recommended Luther read the great teachings of mysticism. In mysticism, Luther found a path to salvation for a time, but soon that path led to a dead end. These guys that were dealing with Luther, they were just beside themselves of how to deal with him. They None of the answers they provided helped. He was always in the confessional. He was always feeling like he hadn't done enough or didn't confess enough or there was something to be afraid of. So one of them suggested, look, why don't you listen to the, go read the mystics. They had a different, a little bit different take on this and might lead you to some peace. And it did help him for a little while, but eventually he analyzed it and realized there's a dead end there too. The mystics taught Luther that all he had to do was love God. Sounds easy, right? That's a relief. But then Luther really started being introspective again, taking this very seriously. And he started considering what are, what are my feelings to God? The God that Luther understood was a wrathful, vengeful God that was ready to judge him at every turn. He was a God that's sitting there with his with a lightning bolt on his hand, ready to strike you with it just as soon as you committed a sin. Because of his feelings about the way he was raised and the severe treatment he had and the way he had kind of transferred that to the God of his understanding, this was a God that was severe and judgmental. And that did not bring Luther feelings of love. Instead, this whole journey through the mystics made Luther realize that he hated God. He hated this God. So now he's in even more trouble. He can't confess enough sins. And now this, this kind of this loophole idea of just if you love God with all your heart, you're good. Well, he didn't love God and he couldn't love God. Not that kind of God. And so he knew he's in big trouble now. Luther realized there was no way out for him. It was inevitable. He wasn't going to make it. His sins went beyond what he could confess, and he could not love a just and severe God. What do you do then? Luther's confessor, who was also his superior, decided to try something bold. They don't know what to do with Luther. Do you demote him? Do you take him out of circulation? Do you try to kind of get him out of the way? He went the opposite way. He made Luther a pastor. He did that in hope that study, teaching, and pastoral duties would help him escape his fears. So he promotes Luther to a different position. He makes him a pastor and he makes him actually a educator at the university. He's thinking, okay, maybe if I give Luther other things to think about, so he's not just sitting around worried about this all the time, He's concerned about other people's problems, put him into more of a practical tract and get him teaching, get him teaching things. He's a bright guy. He, his mind will be filled with that and it'll take away from these problems. Well, it was a great idea and it actually worked. However, it worked a little too well. Therefore, Luther was ordered to prepare to teach scripture at the University of Wittenberg and off Luther went to teach. When Luther was forced to prepare lectures on the Bible, he began seeing new meanings in it. So now... He's really starting to examine scripture in a way he never had before because he's getting ready to teach it. He's doing it not in his own personal study at first, but because he was having to teach the scriptures. And he starts to really read them. And he's already got a mind that he's trying to figure all this stuff out. So he's really thinking hard about what he's reading. In 1513, he began to lecture on the Psalms. Because of his time in the monastery, Luther interpreted the Psalms Christologically. They, they read the Psalms and they studied the Psalms as if they were all about Jesus. It, they thought that the psalmist was speaking in the first person, which he was, but it wasn't about him. It was about Christ. It's Christ speaking about himself. 
so Luther had a very Christological understanding of the book of Psalms. So he's seeing some things there that maybe just anybody else that was reading it wouldn't necessarily see. And what he saw in the Psalms was that Christ was undergoing trials similar to his own. That was the beginning of his great discovery, but it wasn't the end of it. It just kind of it kind of got the ball rolling a little bit. The great discovery probably came in 1515. It was then that Luther began lecturing on Romans. So this is the book that's going to finally turn Luther around. Luther later declared that it was the first chapter of Romans that brought him the solution to his difficulties. This did not happen initially. He started studying and he found, even, he found more problems. When Luther read Romans 1.17, which declares that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, Luther saw another declaration of the justice of God, which he feared. He's reading this in the literal sense of the gospel. The gospel is, it, it literally means good news. So Luther's reading this, he's thinking, okay, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he's thinking of the righteousness of God as being that which condemns human beings. So in Luther's mind, he's reading this and he's thinking, this doesn't make any sense. It's not good news that, the, that we can't be justified before God because God is so righteous and so holy and that we are condemned because of his righteousness. This is, doesn't seem to be correct. This can't be what this means. So he really starts getting into it. After much study and bitter anguish, Luther came to a surprising answer. He concluded that the justice of God does not refer to the punishment of sinners. It meant rather that the justice or righteousness of the righteous is not their own but God's. So he he finally figures it out. That's gotta be that's the good news. I don't have to go by my own righteousness. I'm justified before God because he gives me his righteousness. It's not my own. The righteousness of God is that which is given to those who live by faith. It is not earned, but is given because God wished to give it. This is a huge thing. Luther had never seen this before. He hadn't been taught this way. He didn't believe this way. He didn't see God this way. All of a sudden, it all made sense. The, the only way this could be good news for human beings is if you interpret it the way Luther is reading it now. The gospel message, the good news, is that a just God grants as a free gift his own righteousness to people. And he doesn't do it because of the worthiness of the person or how, what their state is in the church. He does it because he wishes to do it. You can't earn it. God just has to give it to you. And this is finally going to bring an end to the problems Luther had. This means that Luther's doctrine of justification by faith does not mean that what God demands of us is faith. It means that both faith and justification are the works of God, a free gift to sinners. That's what changed everything. So I want to read for you something that Luther said about this that you'll understand exactly from this quote what he, how he felt. And here, here's what he said. Luther tells us, quote, I felt that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of scripture gained a new meaning. And from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. Luther is freed because he actually understands now what salvation is and what justification before God is and how it is not his ability to not sin or to confess sins or to have the right kind of love for God or any of that stuff. That is not what's going to do it. 
It is only by God giving us his justification through his righteousness that he gives to us. It's a free gift to sinners. That changed Luther's life. And since then, it has changed the lives of many, many people, myself included. So you might be thinking, this is great news. It's going to be received very well. Well, maybe not. Luther's great discovery did not lead him to immediately protest against the church's interpretation of Christianity. He wasn't trying to start this movement, at least not initially. He continued to teach and was able to bring most of his colleagues at the university un over to his way of thinking. So Luther's just influencing those that he has around him, but he has, is in a university. So he's teaching young people, and he's talking about this stuff with the other professors at the school, and they're starting to come around to what he's saying and, and think, oh, I think this guy's on to something here. I think he's right. Eventually, he became convinced that he must challenge traditional views. He did this by composing 97 theses with the intention of debating them in an academic setting. Originally, he wrote 97 of these. Later on, there's going to be a version of it that we know that's not that many, but it's close to it, though. And he wanted to just debate in a, among other academics. He's not, again, trying to get a big movement started. He does want to challenge these views. He, he feels like he needs to do that. But he's not thinking, I'm breaking up the church. That's not it at all. And it won't be for a little while before that happens. But and it obviously is not just him doing that. It took other factors as well. But he's ready to bring his thoughts out, and he wants to get together with some other people, and let's, let's talk about this. Let's do it in an academic setting. He wrote these in Latin originally. He then attacked several of the main tenets of scholastic theology. We talked about that last season. This was the not great theology that was going on during the Middle Ages, the bad theology. Though he expected this to create a great stir, there was hardly any notice beyond the university. So he was thinking he was being controversial, and this was going to get a lot of people to take notice. Again, not intentionally trying to cause a stir, but he just thought that it would, because he is going to definitely challenge some very key orthodox teaching of the church and he's thinking people are going to they're going to take notice of this and if and this first round they did not then luther composed another set of theses which were translated into german and distributed in inexpensive editions that did create a stir because then his thinking got out it wasn't just among the academics anymore who could read latin or high-ranking members of the church who probably weren't even paying attention to him. Now the guy down the street that's on the corner or that lives in, on the farm, he can read it now. He's able to get it in a very inexpensive edition of a book that he can read. And then the word gets out. This set of 95 theses, again, this is the one we all know about. They attack the sale of indulgences. Without knowing it, Luther had attacked plans for profit made by very wealthy and influential people. You might be able to challenge some teachings if you just keep quiet about it and stick in the university, but you start affecting the bottom line and people lining their pockets, then we got a problem, and so a problem's coming. But in order to understand it, we had to understand what was going on with these indulgences. The sale of indulgences which Luther targeted had been authorized by Pope Leo X, and also involved the economic and political ambitions of the House of Hohenzollern. Albert of Brandenburg, hoping to gain the Archbishopric of Mainz, had agreed to purchase the position from Leo X for the price of 10,000 ducats. The sale of indulgences would help Albert raise the necessary funds. So here we go, corruption in the church, buying positions. This was something that was supposed to be knocked out. It had been earlier. It came back. 
these reformers in the church, the ones that had come around trying to use councils, they weren't able to knock it out. And this is just an example of it. It's going to stir this problem up. And you want to blame Luther for there being problems? You can. But what about this nonsense going on? If this had never been going on, then we wouldn't, things would have gone, they would have shook out different. But it was going on. And Albert's wanting to buy his position. It's going to be a lucrative one for him. And, and the Pope wants the money for it. And Albert says, I can get the money, but the way I'm going to do it is I need to be able to sell some indulgences to raise it. And you're going to get a kickback from that uh, that's going to go to the Pope, and that'll pay for my position. And Pope Leo X is all too ready to go right ahead with that plan. Leo X intended to use the money to refurbish Rome and to finish building the Basilica of St. Peter. So he's going to spend it. He's not going to spend it on taking care of people or helping out the church to reach out to those in need. He's going to use it to try to spruce up the place and keep on making these lavish buildings that weren't helping anybody. John Tetzel was put in charge of the sale of indulgences in Germany. He was very corrupt, making false claims to help sales. He claimed the indulgences he sold made sinners cleaner than when coming out of baptism. So this guy was good. He was a salesman. He, he came up, maybe these were some of the first jingles, like a television commercial type of things. He had these little sayings out there. And he said that, man, you get these indulgences, and these are the best ones. They will make you clean just like you came out of baptism. In fact, you'll be cleaner than Adam before the fall. That's a bold thing to say. <laughs> before sin came into the world, you're going to be that position if you buy these indulgences that the church are selling. It's just ridiculous nonsense. But it was working, and people were buying them. For those wanting to buy an indulgence for a deceased loved one, Tetzel promised, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now, you got to admire that saying. Some of the worst nonsense has ever been uttered. But it's catchy, and people will remember it. This is a time, again, that the church is teaching that if you, are, if you die with some sins, you die with some issues, you're not quite right with the church, you could go to purgatory, this middle ground place, until you deal with that and, and be able to be worthy to move on up. What you can do, though, is if you have a family member that you think might have been in that position, they may be stuck in purgatory, you can buy this indulgence on their behalf, and it'll take care of their problems. They can go on in. In fact, he said, well, you put that coin in the coffer, and they're out immediately. And that's a catchy phrase. you got to admire that. you got to admire that level of, of corruption and dishonesty be able to do it in a creative way to build people out of money. And boy, this guy was good at it. These claims aroused the anger of many among the learned, not just Luther. Luther wasn't the only one upset about this. There were a lot of them. Many also saw the sale as one more example of Rome fleecing the German people. This was a complaint they had. It was this German nationalism that was kind of starting to make this come forward. It was like, well, you just use the, the German people as your personal piggy bank. And whenever you need money, you just come and break the piggy bank and suck us dry and then leave us behind. You don't care anything about us until you need money again. And so this was something that, again, they were looking they were seeing it. Yes, these indulgences, you're taking advantage of us to get money to go. You're not going to spend it on us. You're going back to Rome to spruce up your, your buildings up there. But these concerns were only ever quietly expressed and the sale went on. People complained about it, but they were scared. They didn't want to get it out publicly, so they just kept it on the down low. They would gripe among themselves, but they didn't make a public statement. But Luther didn't have that problem. He was, <laughs> he was very willing to make public statements. So that brings us to the 95 Theses. What did they have to say? 
It was at this point that Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg. Though Luther thought this set of theses would be ignored outside of academic circles, this set was much more devastating than the earlier ones. People had taken notice of this. It had been distributed to more people, and they read it, and they realized, oh, man, this dude is really, he's coming in hard, and he's making some pretty controversial statements in these. Luther expressed the thought of many Germans that they resented their exploitation by foreign interests. One of the things people might not realize is this was not strictly a theological document. It wasn't just attacking theology in the church. It had a lot of a lot of it had to do with the way Germans felt like they were being mistreated by the church and by other foreign interests. And so there's more in this document than just theological points. Those are in there. But there's a there's a big part of this is Luther standing up for his people against the church, pushing back on what they felt like. And a lot of people felt this way. They weren't saying it, and they didn't have anybody to say it for them till now. But they felt this way. And now in, in Luther, they're seeing this guy that's going to stand up for them. And they like that. It also directly attacked the sale of indulgences, which endangered prophets and designs of the Pope and the House of Hohenzollern. Luther argued that if it were true that the Pope had the power to free souls from purgatory, then he should use that power not for profit, but out of love and freely. Luther makes a great point here. Pope, you can, you, you've got the power to do this. You can get these people out of purgatory. Why are you not just doing it? Why are you selling that? Why are you using that as a money-making operation? If you cared anything about people, you would just get them out. Don't make them have to pay for that. Bust them out now. You're so powerful that the minute the coin hits the coffer, the soul, the soul is out, then get them out today. And he, that's a pretty black eye for the Pope and, and for the church leadership because it's a point that's hard to be disputed. Luther published this thesis on October 31st, 1517. So that's Halloween, 1517. This created such an impact that is often viewed as, as marking the date of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. For those who are in the Protestant church, we look back to that date as the beginning of the actual Reformation period with what Luther published here, October 31st, 1517. So that's it for today. That gets us to what would officially be known as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation when Luther made his declaration and put it out publicly. Next week, we're going to we're going to look at even more of Martin Luther. Again, we will be talking about him for a little while. Even when we move on to other things, he'll just keep resurfacing because he's so influential. But we'll jump into that next week. We'll look at Luther's ongoing struggle and how the ultimate split with the church happened and how they really never could go back after some events that are coming. So hope you can be with me for that. Again, I'm so thankful that you joined me today. I hope that you enjoyed this. And we'll continue on as we go from the time of the Protestant Reformation to the present day. God bless.